In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. We were all born and raised in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, headquartered in Salt Lake City, Utah, more commonly referred to as the Mormon faith. All of us have left that religion and have been drawn to faith in Jesus Christ based on biblical teachings. The name of our podcast, Outer Brightness, reflects John 1, 9, which calls Jesus the true light, which gives light to everyone. We have found life beyond Mormonism to be brighter than we were told it would be, and the light we have is not our own. It comes to us from without thus outer brightness. Our purpose is to share our journeys of faith and what God has done in drawing us to his son. We have conversations about all aspects of that transition, the fears, challenges, joys, and everything in between. We're glad you found us and we hope you'll stick around. You're listening to Outer Brightness, a podcast for post-Mormons who are drawn by God to walk with Jesus rather than turn away. Outer brightness, outer brightness, outer brightness, outer brightness. There's no weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth here, except when Michael's hangry, that is, hangry, that is, hangry, that is. I'm Matthew, the nuclear Calvinist. I'm Michael, the ex-Mormon apologist. I'm Paul Bunyan. Let's get into it. All right. Welcome back, Fireflies. This week, we're talking to Matthew, the nuclear Calvinist, about an article that he wrote. It was published in two parts on Beggar's Bread and is titled The Mormon Chameleon, the Ever-Changing Gospel of the LDS Church. Matthew, welcome to the Outer Brightness podcast as our resident author this week. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Quick plug for those who may be new to the podcast. If you'd like to hear how God drew Matthew out of Mormonism to faith in Christ alone, you can listen back to episodes 9 through 11, where Matthew tells his story. Matthew, why don't you remind our listeners what Beggar's Bread is and tell us why you wrote this article and who the intended, who the intended audience is that you had in mind. So basically, uh, from what I understand, Beggar's Bread is a website that is, that is owned and operated by our, Fred, our friend, Fred Anson. And so he publishes a lot of articles there related to the LDS Church and um, kind of people he knows personally or, or associates. He also publishes their articles. So... Uh, Michael, I know you have some articles published there too. And Paul, I'm not sure if you do. I think you do, right? He does. Okay. So we both, so, so we all have articles there. Um, and so they're all just kind of related to the LDS church and they're not uh, focused on one particular subject, but they're kind of a, wa- a wide scope of subjects that it talks of, 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 of articles on the website. So uh, this article that I wrote, the Mormon chameleon, the ever-changing gospel of the LDS church. So it was originally just something that I came up with kind of off the cuff. Um, I started writing some articles that were posted on Facebook as Facebook notes. So when I would get kind of inspired, I guess you could say, for lack of a better word, I would just had an idea and then I would start writing about it and I would post it on Facebook. So on my Facebook notes, they're all publicly available. Uh, there's this article that's slightly changed for Beggar's Bread, but it's basically the same content. Um, I've written other articles like on you know, uh, the Sabbath, I've written also on baptism, things like that. So this one I was interested to write about uh, just because it seemed like I would see a consistent pattern when witnessing to Latter-day Saints is that with every single person I would talk to, it seems like they would use almost an entirely different apologetic from each other to where I would ask a question to one Latter-day Saint and he would give me a totally different response to another one. And 
it just seemed like depending on the situation, it seemed like the way that the gospel as believed by Latter-day Saints was kind of presented in totally different ways. And I've found that kind of troublesome when you're all supposed to be claiming that Protestantism is the problem where we have, quote unquote, 30,000 denominations, which is a highly bloated number. And so the solution to that is to believe in our church and our gospel. But then when you present that gospel and what it means to be saved or to know God and you're presenting it in totally different ways, I don't see how that's any better of a solution than to have simply many different Christians who have a slightly different understanding of scripture. So I kind of wrote this article to kind of address that and to try to tackle why that would be the case, why it would be presented in a different way, and in what ways the gospel is presented differently by Latter-day Saints. So the title, The Mormon Chameleon, I, I, I kind of use that title to show that depending on which situation you're in and which person you're talking to, the LDS gospel changes colors like a chameleon would. So it's it's like you have to try to address the LDS gospel completely differently in each situation because you don't you don't know which you don't know which gospel you're going to be presented with so you kind of as a christian apologist you kind of have to be prepared and and know what what you're going to be talking to and, and it's almost like you have to ask some questions to find out what they believe first because they could be totally believing something totally different from another latter-day saint so sometimes i find you're spending 20 minutes just asking questions. Okay, well, what do you believe about this? What do you believe about this? So it's it's kind of difficult. There's not a one-size-fits-all apologetic with Latter-day Saints. Yeah, that's a good point. It's definitely challenging. Um, and you do have to ask the questions because if you don't, you can find yourself in a situation where you're going off in a direction, assuming that they believe one thing and then, you know, they'll get upset with you. That's not what I believe. Uh, even if the line you're following is kind of the the, the straight Orthodox LDS belief, um, you, you, you will find the individual Latter-day Saints believe some things that are, that are different from, from what uh, other Mormons believe. Michael, do you have any comments on that before we jump into the article? I was just going to say that I totally agree with what Matthew's saying, because I've seen that a lot of times, too. I'll kind of ask, you know, Latter-day Saints, uh, you know, where do you believe our righteousness comes from? Or, you know, do you, do you believe that, you know, grace just enables us and we become perfect on our own. And I kind of see them all over the board uh, with that question. And, and some of them, will, some of them will say, Oh, we do our best and Christ makes up the rest. And I'll see some of them say like, Oh, you know, grace enables us. And, and it's, it's all up to us from that point, but it's there to empower us. And then I see a lot of Latter-day Saints these days saying that, Oh yeah, it's, it's Christ's righteousness. It's not our own. And so, yeah, like Matthew said, it's just depends on what Latter-day Saint you're talking to and, I do the same thing. I, I start with lots of questions. Um, probably 80% of my conversation initially with a Latter-day Saint is just going to be asking them where they are because I feel like for each member of the church, I don't know what, what number they're saying they're at now, if it's 14 million or, or what, but it seems like there's 14 million LDS Gospels out there. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely a challenge. Um, so listeners, what we plan to do today is just kind of walk through Matthew's article. He'll read a section and then we've got some discussion questions that Matthew or Michael and I will put to him. Sound good, Matthew? Yeah, sounds great. All right. Why don't you hit that first section? I was a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, also known as the LDS or Mormon Church, from the age of 10 until 30 when I officially resigned in 2017. I served a faithful two-year evangelistic and service mission to Belgium and France between 2007 and 2009. 
Since God showered grace upon me to learn the truth of the LDS church, that it does not follow the gospel and it does not worship the God as written in the Old and New Testaments of the Holy Scriptures, I have come to receive a knowledge of the true Lord Jesus Christ, God from all eternity to all eternity, who took upon flesh to die for my sins and to exercise saving faith in him. In the time since I resigned from the church, I have communicated with those who are still members of the LDS church and attempted to have respectful, loving dialogues with them. I know most of them are moral people who claim to seek truth and follow Jesus. However, they have been blinded by a system that does not accurately teach the Christ that Christianity has worshipped for nearly 2,000 years. Their view of who he is, what he actually accomplished on the cross, and how to be in a right relationship with him has been distorted by teachings given by the first president and quote-unquote prophet of their church, Joseph Smith Jr. He emphatically denied the God from the Bible, which says that he is God, quote, from everlasting to everlasting, end quote, from Psalm 90, verse 2, when Smith said this at a sermon for a funeral funeral ceremony, quote, for I'm going to tell you how God came to be God and what sort of a being he is. For we have imagined that God was God from the beginning of all eternity. I will refute that idea and take away the veil so you may see. He once was a man like one of us and that God himself, the father of us all, once dwelled on an earth the same as Jesus Christ himself did in the flesh and like us, end quote. At this moment of time, Joseph Smith eternally severed the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints from biblical and true Christianity and declared war upon those who do believe and follow the Bible. When I evangelize Latter-day Saints and tell them they are not actually Christians, I do so out of love for them and their salvation and not out of spite. However, I do so in acknowledging that we do not have fellowship and they are not yet my brothers in Christ, as long as they continue teaching and believing what the LDS Church has to say about Christ and the gospel. When I speak with Latter-day Saints, I try to touch on the most important points of sharing the gospel. They must understand, one, who God is, two, who Christ is, and what he accomplished during his incarnation, and three, what the good news of the gospel is. What makes these tasks difficult is that in interacting with Latter-day Saints, each has their own description of what the gospel is, how we have a right relationship with our creator, and how we return to live with God after this life. I've heard many different descriptions when speaking with them. The following are some examples of things I've heard. I've heard from various Latter-day Saints that the gospel is, one, becoming more like their Heavenly Father, two, becoming more like Christ, three, receiving eternal life by obedience to the, quote, laws and ordinances of the restored gospel, end quote, four, the plan of happiness, five, what Jesus did for us that we couldn't do ourselves, six, the way to return to heaven with our families forever, seven, receiving forgiveness of sins, eight, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And the way to receive the quote-unquote restored gospel is according to the Preach My Gospel handbook that is given to every single missionary. Uh, quote, invite others to come into Christ by helping them receive the restored gospel through faith in Jesus Christ and his atonement, repentance, baptism, receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost, and enduring to the end, end quote. Yet, I hear from Latter-day Saints that the purpose of the gospel or the way to return to live with Heavenly Father differs. Some say, one, we have to humble ourselves and accept Christ. Two, we are only saved by grace, but we have to receive ordinances and keep the commandments and our covenants to, to receive them. Three, the gospel is meant to transform us to be more like God. It isn't a set of rules or do's and don'ts. Four, we are to prove our faithfulness to God by keeping our second estate, with the first estate being the pre-mortal life, where Latter-day Saints believe we all lived in heaven with God before coming to earth. And since we came to earth, it shows we were faithful and kept our first estate faithfully. Five, we are to love God and our neighbor. And if we have loved enough, then God will allow us into heaven. 
six, we have to love Jesus and keep the commandments as best as we can. We don't have to be perfect and Jesus will make up the rest. However, if you look at all those various definitions, some of them seem to be theologically shallow, focused more on emotions or not getting into the heart of the matter. And some are even mutually exclusive, meaning they all cannot be simultaneously true. We are either saved by God's grace or we must keep the commandments in order to be saved. That is one is the gift of the gospel and one is salvation by works. Even if God is helping us to keep the commandments, it is still up to us to get to heaven. Salvation is either entirely a gift or just something you work for. But according to the Bible, salvation is entirely a gift and not something we receive by any measure of our works. Quote, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast, end quote. And that's Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. So, Matthew, really enjoy that first part of that first section of your article, why, why do you think it's so important to focus on who God is up front with Latter-day Saints? Because as Latter-day Saints, when we were members, we believed that we knew who God was and we knew who God was more correctly and more fully than Christians did. That either Christians didn't believe the Bible, what it says about God, or that the Bible had been corrupted or was incomplete and didn't give a full picture of who God is. So when we talk with Latter-day Saints and we say, we even say the word God, in our minds, we picture something totally different than what a Latter-day Saint thinks of in their mind as God. Usually Latter-day Saints will think of, when they think of God, they're specifically thinking of the Father and only the Father. And they think of the Father as, many of them will think of him as simply a man with a body, and they say that he's eternally been God, and they don't want to worry about how he got his body. But traditional LDS theology is that God was a man like us on another planet who was faithful to his God and the gospel and who, through his obedience and faithfulness, he was exalted to godhood. You, you definitely uh, hit on that because you quoted from the King Follett sermon, which itself isn't canonized in LDS scripture. But do you think that most Latter-day Saints incorporate that anyway into their thinking of the nature of God? And if you do, why do you think that's the case? Well, it seems to be changing quite a bit nowadays. But traditionally, yes, they that was kind of the King Follett discourse isn't technically canonized as scripture. But it, it was so fundamental to temple work. It was so fundamental to understanding the nature of God and, and our purpose here on this earth that it was just kind of part and parcel with the LDS gospel. Uh, that seems to be changing nowadays. Um, but traditionally, yes, they saw this. They saw the nature of God as so fundamental to their religion that it's what drove them to do temple work in the first place. It gave them their purpose. They, they saw the path that the father followed to receive exaltation and to be married and have spirit children. And so that's the path that they would follow. So you, you can't separate the nature of God and who he is from how they understand the gospel. Now, like I said, a lot of people have changed that or they've tried to reinterpret the King Follett discourse and what Joseph Smith said about the nature of God. Um, but I don't think that's, I don't think that's a historical understanding of it. Um, Some of the people have even just tried to ignore the King Follett discourse altogether, but that causes so many problems when the King Follett discourse is probably the most quoted discourse that's not scripture in all the general conference addresses and talks. So I, I don't think you can just say that it's not valid or it's not authoritative when it's been quoted so often by so many prophets in their general conference. But uh, I'm kind of I'm kind of digressing. It, it seems like that would kind of uh, I don't know just drive a wedge between everybody in the church too. If if you're saying that that's not authoritative, because like you're saying it, um, if that's the nature of God, I mean it, it also affects our nature. You know, like if if we're literally His children, then that makes us gods and embryo, and 
And then everything that we do in the temple, as far as getting married for eternity, is just following that same path. And that's what, what Mormonism is all about. It's following the example, right, of God. And so just down, you know, from that, that very top thing about what is the nature of God, it affects every single thing in Mormonism. And so the moment that you say that the King Follett discourse is not authoritative or that Joseph Smith, you know, wasn't speaking the truth there. It just, it seems like it dismantles everything in Mormonism. Would you agree with that? When you completely redefine how they believe who God is, then I don't see why I should be a Latter-day Saint. So when they try to transmogrify or transform whatever word you want to use to turn God to be more like how Christians believe him to be, it's like, okay, well then what benefit do I have to become a Latter-day Saint? Like that's their big selling point. I mean, if you want to use that terminology, is that they have such a fundamentally different view of God that's more understandable and it gives you a purpose and it gives you a direction to head towards. It's like, okay, I understand that now. God is a man just like I was and he had to go through temptations like I do. So, you know, I can become like him because he he made it. So that's where I'm headed. But if you get rid of that and you try to you try to change it to something totally different, then the LDS gospel kind of falls apart. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, it definitely does. It's it's almost like lately uh, the idea of becoming like God uh, in Latter Day Saint thought, as as you speak with Latter Day Saints, is 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 more just akin to the idea of sanctification, period, full stop, rather than um, the whole uh, embodied becoming a a God of your own planet kind of view that that earlier Latter Day Saints might have held to. And it's it's interesting to see that transition taking place. And you, and you also hear them quoting too from early church fathers, although it's always out of a context. It's just a, a phrase here or there mm-hmm. talking about how God became man. So man can become God. Yeah. And, but you have to understand that that was a totally different context and worldview. And even back then they hadn't really quite pinned down their theological language. So uh, they were still trying to figure things out back in the early church. Um, so you'll hear, I think it's Justin Martyr who talks about Jesus as the second God. Um, so a lot of Latter-day Saints will point to that and say, see, he believed that Jesus was a completely separate God in being and separate person. And it's like, I don't think Justin Martyr, he was at the, you know, the very beginning of the second century. I don't think he quite had it all figured out. You know, it was, it was probably his way of explaining, well, the father is God and Jesus is God. So he's the second God, but it's not, it's not saying he's a separate God. And, and then when they quote these passages or these quotations about theosis, I think understood from a biblical perspective, theosis is not incorrect. I think theosis can be understood correctly. And it's kind of just a different way of explaining sanctification when you're becoming more conformed to the image of Christ and you're become partakers of the divine nature. These are both biblical phrases. So understood correctly, that's fine. But to say that these these quotations about theosis say that you can become your own God, uh, just like God became God, and we'll all be gods of our own universes and creations. And we'll have spirit children, things like that. That was completely not even in the mind of the early church fathers. So it's, it's just kind of unfortunate or difficult because, because yeah, the, the, the crux of the matter is we have to know who God is. We can't even Joseph Smith admitted this in the articles on faith. Uh, although there's dispute as to who actually wrote those articles, but I'm pretty sure he, he had a lot to do with them. So on the articles on faith, he said that you can't just have faith in God or in something. You have to know what the object of your faith is to some extent. If you don't know the object of your faith, you can't really have much faith in them. So we have to know who God is. And so that's why it's really important for us to talk to LDS about this. Yeah. And with regards to the quotes from the early church fathers, it's important to keep in mind that our rule of faith in terms of theology and practice is the Bible. 
right? It's God's word. Um, as wise and, and important as the early church fathers are, they are not our rule of faith. And there are things in which they are wrong and, and can, can be, uh, in, in fact, uh, viewed as wrong because they're, they're, I'm not saying they're heretical in all cases. I'm saying they're, they're fallible men, right? And so they're not the word of God. And, and, and to point to them, uh, when Latter-day Saints point to them, it's, it's, it's kind of an interesting tactic because on the one hand, uh, Latter-day Saint belief and, and the, the whole purpose of the existence of a, a restored church is, is this idea that the church fell away. And, and it used to be that that they would point to very early, you know, the church fell away, fell away very early. Um, and so to point to early church fathers as if uh, they're presenting truth is is kind of an interesting tactic from Latter-day Saints. Um, I get that they're trying to point to, oh, see, there's these latent ideas that that still continued into uh, the, the second and third centuries with some of these church fathers. Um, and therefore, those latent ideas are what was true and what was being lost over time. Um, but I just don't think that tactic really works, especially when they'll be quoting a father from, you know, as late as the third or fourth century that, that seems to be at least on the surface and how they're interpreting it's something that Latter-day Saints would agree with over biblical or historical Christians would. And they say that as proof of like, well, see, here's where glimmers of the gospel of the restored gospel were still being taught. But then when you ask, okay, well, then why do you disagree with him on infant baptism? Why do you disagree with him on baptismal, you know, regeneration from their perspective? Why do you disagree with, you know, one God only? And they'll say, well, that's proof of the apostasy. So when they say something that agrees with their doctrine, that's proof that their gospel is true. But then when they you show them quotes from them and something that's incorrect, according to their gospel, then they'll say, well, that's proof of the apostasy. So it's a little bit inconsistent there. Yeah. So so my take on that, if you don't mind me just butting in a little bit, is I think that's incredibly shaky ground to to try to quote from the early church fathers. And it's kind of the same thing when Latter-day Saints try to quote from the Bible and, and support their beliefs as well. Because, you know, the Book of Mormon says that plain and precious truths were removed from the Bible. And, and I would say that a little bit of apostasy in those regards constitutes a total apostasy, you know, a little leaven leavens the whole loaf. And so if if there's parts of the Bible that are not correct or pure, then the whole thing needs to be thrown out of scripture, in my opinion. I don't think that they can they can really stand on that ground and and try to promote their beliefs. And I think that's the big problem that they're facing with that, whether they realize it or not. Yeah, that's a good point. And we'll be we'll be digging in deeply to uh, the question of the great apostasy as taught within Mormonism, when we get to our uh, Articles of Faith episode where we cover uh, what about priesthood and church structure and what about continuing revelation. So those those episodes will be coming up in the next month or so, two months. So so Matthew, one, one final question on this section. Why, why do you think we hear so many different definitions of, quote unquote, the gospel from Latter-day Saints? I think it's Typically, it's it's driven by that person's understanding of what the LDS Church teaches, and I think also the conversation. Because you could find even the same Latter Day Saint that you talk to, um, you could talk to them about how we are saved, we're justified, we're adopted by grace alone, and point to passages in Scripture that say that. And then they will respond back by asking, "Well, does that mean we don't have to keep the commandments? Does that mean we don't have to love Jesus? Does that mean we don't have to do anything?" We just get a free ride to heaven. 
and then you'll explain that the biblical position is that no, we, you know, we're called to live for Christ and repent and do good works, but those do not contribute to our justification. Justification is the gift of God and it's given to us freely by God through faith alone. So they will say, okay, they will really emphasize works and commandment keeping and law keeping. And then the next minute when you say, okay, well then how are you righteous before God? Are you, is it by works or by faith? And then they will kind of turn the other foot and they'll say, well, it's by grace. And so then I have to say, well, wait, hold up. You just said that you have to keep the law in order to return to live with heavenly father, to be, to be good, to be justified. And then now you're saying the opposite that you're just justified by grace. And so it seems reactionary most of the time, I think, to where they don't want to be seen as one thing or the other. So they'll backstep and say, well, no, I don't mean this, uh, but I mean this. Or they might just directly contradict themselves and not really notice or care about the contradiction. I think it's also um, when you're when you're talking with them about what it means to return to live with Heavenly Father, I've, I've noticed this too with other groups um, where they'll use phraseology from the Bible to support their beliefs but it's a little bit deceptive. So um, there's a passage in Galatians where Paul talks about uh, faith working through love. And so they'll say, that's what we believe. We believe in salvation. You know, God is working, you know, it's faith working through love. And then in that phrase, the working through love, they squeeze in the ordinances, they squeeze in all the commandments, they squeeze in uh, following the prophets, all these other requirements in order to be to be righteous before God. And so I think it's, it's a little bit deceptive to be using scripture that way, but they want, they have this desire to be biblical um, because I think they understand many of them understand that, okay, yeah, there is a lot of evidence that the Bible is reliable. This narrative that the Bible's just been corrupted, that it's just been totally changed. It's, it, there's not really much evidence of it other than just believing it. So many of them have taken the route of, well, okay, let's start off with taking the Bible as reliable, but instead of just starting with the Bible and, and developing our theology from that, let's take the Bible phrases and let's fit what I already believe into the Bible. So it's not deriving your theology from the Bible. It's putting your theology into the Bible. Um, and so, th so there's different reasons, I think, that people defend or give different presentations of the gospel. Those are just a couple ideas that I have off the top of my head. But I think it's also just with modern, not even just modern Latter-day Saint. Uh, culture. It's also just with modern Christianity. We want to make everything about love. So I think one of the definitions I gave is just like salvation is, uh, let's see, uh, it's it's about loving God, or if we've loved God enough, then God will love us and we'll be like him or something like that. So it, it sounds very flowery. It sounds very inviting and non-intrusive or non-offensive. So it's it's uh, maybe it's a different way to try to evangelize people to get them interested in the LDS gospel to be like, well, we're just all about love. God is very loving. And so we just have to love God. And that's the whole gospel. Um, I can't say exactly why I know why they do that, but these are just kind of ideas that I have in my head as to, as to why they might present the gospel in completely different ways. And in, in light of what you're just saying too, with uh, evangelism, I think you kind of hit it on the head right there too. Um, so I think the fact that they're talking to us and, and we are Protestants and we want to hear about grace. I think they know that. And so I think they do tailor the message a little bit based on who they're talking to, to make the church seem more appealing to draw us in, you know, if we're not aware of what the LDS church actually teaches, you know, 
I mean, I was just talking to a Latter-day Saint on one of the forums the other day where he said, you know, there, there is no path to heaven. Like Jesus is the path. And I said to him, can you explain to me then what the difference between your beliefs and Protestant beliefs are? And he never responded. Yeah, that's interesting. So let me, let me throw the question to you, Michael, and see what you think. Do you think that there is a generational difference in this regard? Is it, is it the result possibly of, of more recent LDS teachings from general authorities and, and, and maybe apologists that, that there's more of a focus on grace now than in the past? I think so. And uh, you've got, you know, some of these speeches from Brad Wilcox that have, you know, become big and people have listened to that. And, and so I think people really like the idea of grace. You know, it's been, it's been a couple of generations of, of Mormonism now. And I think people are kind of, kind of realizing how difficult it is. I think there's a lot of stress and depression, you know, in the world when you can't be perfect and your religion demands it. So them throwing a lifeline of grace makes it feel like it's possible, you know, like this is, this is exciting. And it's just one more thing for them to add to, uh, I guess their, uh, I, their, their pocket about how God is so merciful, you know, not only does he give us another chance after this life, but he extends grace and that word grace is going to mean something totally different to every Latter-day Saint. But I think on the other hand, they're also just getting better at speaking Christian as well. And so, you know, I've had some Christians say, oh, do you think Mormons are, are becoming closer to being Christian? And I said, no, because I think they're just getting better at talking to us so that it seems like they are. And I remember one time I was on my mission and I was talking to this young couple and the guy was just like, you know, I, I heard something. I, I don't know if it's true, but I believe that you guys can become gods. And I flat out denied it. And I said, no, we, we can't. And then in the car with my companion, I said, you know why I answered in that way? Because I was training and I said, you know, it's we all learn line upon line and precept upon precept. And he wasn't ready for that. You know, he would have had too negative of a reaction. So that was my way of, you know, and from his perspective, he probably thought, oh, Mormons don't believe that. That's, that's crazy. But, you know, it was all about evangelism and, and me trying to soften the message and make it look more appealing. So that's just kind of a, some background there. It, it is one of the challenges I faced as well in, in evangelizing when I was a Latter-day Saint was, you know, you're, you're, you're constantly told, uh, like you're given a message, like what you were saying, you know, line upon line, precept upon precept, don't jump into, you know, the deeper doctrine, give them milk before meat, uh, all of those kinds of messages. And I remember as a, as a latter, as a Latter-day Saint missionary, we were actually discouraged from ever giving, uh, an investigator, like a copy of the doctrine and covenants and Pearl of great price. That was something that, that was discouraged from them receiving until they were baptized which I thought was a little bit um, misleading because much of the uh, distinctive Latter-day Saint doctrine is in the Doctrine and Covenants and Pearl of Great Price rather than the Book of Mormon. And so it's it's almost like a bait and switch if you play it that way. And, and at the same time, um, if you look at those old, you know, discussions that, that we taught when I was on my mission uh, before Preach My Gospel, uh, there really wasn't anything about um, eternal progression. Uh, you did get into the temple and eternal marriage uh, in the discussions, and there was certainly talk of the, the apostasy, the great apostasy, but you never got into 
you know, God, the father has a body kind of, kind of language within the discussions. So um, it's, it's definitely a challenge. I, I do think there's a generational difference though, because I think some younger Latter-day Saints, they're, they're not hearing the messages, the same type of messages from the pulpit at general conference that older generations of Latter-day Saints heard. Uh, Matthew, you mentioned that the King Follett sermon is, is one of the most quoted. I think that's probably dwindling. Um, it's probably not as quoted as not quoted as often as it used to be. And so it's interesting that there has to be, you know, YouTube channels like Saints Unscripted to kind of present to younger generations of Latter-day Saints like, hey, yeah, we do believe in this eternal progression thing. <laughs> you know, it's kind of kind of interesting. Um, and you do encounter some younger Latter-day Saints who don't know um, about that that doctrine. So one thing I was going to add, too, is that I, I don't know, I have, I have different thoughts about this because I don't know, I, I think it's better overall that we have clear lines in the sand between, you know, what we believe and what Latter-day Saints believe. And this blurring of the lines, I think in general, just muddies the whole situation. But at the same time, I was thinking, what if a Latter-day Saint grows up in the church? They never hear this idea that they're going to become gods. All they hear about is that they worship one God and that they're saved by grace. Is it possible that they can be saved in contradiction to what LDS theology has taught for decades? You know, maybe that's true. Maybe that's possible. Maybe there's a better chance of someone being saved in the LDS church today than 100 years ago, where everybody clearly knew the differences between what they believe and what Christians believe. I don't know. I'm not really sure. It's, I mean, I know that, that God's in control of everything. So maybe, maybe he's working in the hearts of these LDS leaders to try to make them sound more biblical. And it's kind of just confusing a lot of Latter-day Saints, but maybe a lot of people are hearing the what they hear in their minds or what they hear at the pulpit is actually something more akin to the true gospel. And maybe they are being saved. I don't know. It's kind of an interesting thing to think about. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. All right. Uh, Matthew, you want to tackle the the second section of your article there? When discussing what the gospel is, according to Latter-day Saints, I will usually be given different requirements for attaining eternal life from them than from what previous leaders of the LDS church have provided. In a BYU devotional address titled Be Therefore Perfect, given on September 17, 1974, LDS president and prophet Spencer W. Kimball said, quote, Let me say then that perfection is still our goal. It is reached by climbing steadily upward, controlling all our desires, impulses, and urges. It is possible. Remember that the Lord gave us Abraham as an example and quoted him often. Quote, Abraham received all things whatsoever he received by revelation and commandment, by my word, saith the Lord, and hath entered into his exaltation and sitteth upon his throne. Close quote from DNC 132.29. This is not a promise, it is a reality. Go ye therefore and do the works of Abraham, enter ye into my law and ye shall be saved. That is uh, DNC 132.32. Perfection is a long, hard journey with many pitfalls. It's not attainable overnight. Eternal vigilance is the price of victory. Eternal vigilance is required in the subduing of enemies and becoming the master of oneself. It cannot be accomplished in little spurts and disconnected efforts. There must be constant and valiant, purposeful, purposeful living, righteous living. The glory of the Lord can be had only through correct and worthy marriage and living a clean, worthy life. And that's the ending of uh, Spencer W. Kimball's quote. In a book titled The Miracle Forgiveness, written by future LDS President Spencer W. Kimball, he writes that perfection is not only a commandment, but it is an attainable goal for Latter-day Saints. Quote, eternal life hangs in the balance awaiting the works of men. This progress toward eternal life is a matter of achieving perfection. 
living all the commandments, guarantees total forgiveness of sins and assures one of exaltation through that perfection, which comes by complying with the formula the Lord gave us. In his Sermon on the Mount, he made the command to all men, be therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect, from Matthew 5.48. Being perfect means to triumph over sin. This is a mandate from the Lord. He is just and wise and kind. He would never require anything from his children, which was not for their benefit and which was not attainable. Perfection, therefore, is an achievable achievable goal, close quote. Kimball adds on page 210 of the aforementioned book, only as we overcome shall we become perfect and move toward godhood. As I have indicated previously, the time to do this is now in mortality, close quote. Here, President Kimball states that you actually can attain perfection according to your obedience and that the time to reach for perfection by your own obedience is now. This is done by climbing the ladder of obedience, and that obedience and submission to the law is how Abraham received his inheritance, quoting the Doctrine and Covenants, uh, a book of scripture used by the the LDS Church. But doesn't this go against what other Latter-day Saints have said personally, where they say it isn't about being perfect, but it is about just doing our part? Or those who say our works actually don't give us eternal life, but we are saved by grace. To quote another LDS leader, Apostle and now President Russell M. Nelson, he said the following, quote, If I were to ask which of the Lord's commandments is most difficult to keep, many of us might cite Matthew 5.48, Be therefore perfect even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Keeping this commandment can be a concern because each of us is far from perfect, both spiritually and temporally. When comparing one's personal performance with the supreme standard of the Lord's expectation, The reality of imperfection can at times be depressing. My heart goes out to conscientious saints who, because of their shortcomings, allow feelings of depression to rob them of happiness in life. Mortal perfection can be achieved as we try to perform every duty, keep every law, and strive to be as perfect in our sphere as our Heavenly Father is in His. If we do the best we can, the Lord will bless us according to our deeds and the desires of our hearts. Close quote. Here, Nelson paints a slightly less grim picture than Kimball does of what it requires to attain perfection as a Latter-day Saint, but I think he does so inconsistently. He recognizes that Jesus commands perfection in Matthew 5.48 and that we are capable of being perfect in, quote, our sphere as our Heavenly Father is in His, end quote, and that we need only, quote, do the best we can, end quote, but you cannot be keeping the commandments, including the command to maintain perfection, and fulfill this requirement by simply doing the best you can. That is not good enough. Perfection is perfection. Even if you were capable of doing doing and keeping all the law, which is not possible, but sin in one area, you are found guilty. James wrote in his epistle in the New Testament, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. This is James chapter 2, verse 10. It is not about doing what we can and having Jesus make up the rest, as many Latter-day Saints will say. If you say your eternal life hinges on perfection and keeping all the commandments, as the LDS scriptures and leaders have said, you must keep all of them perfectly. Just as a college student will mourn over that single A- minus grade, which ruins their perfect GPA, only one sin is required to break the law. Even repentance cannot simply undo that mistake. This is why salvation cannot be based on our keeping the commandments. Even if this were possible and the atonement undoes all of our previous sins, this would mean our salvation is still dependent on ourselves and none of our future sins would be covered. We would be completely dependent on our ability to keep the commandments for our salvation. We would have absolutely no assurance. We could be doing well for our entire lives, and all it takes is one sin for which we have not repented to keep us out of heaven. If our eternal life depends on us and how well we keep the commandments, how can we believe the Bible that says that we are saved by grace? How can both of these propositions be true simultaneously when they are completely irreconcilable? 
The Bible says that if salvation has anything to do with us and our works, it is not grace, but it is a payment. Even if the payment is much higher than what we did to earn it, that does not make it grace. In speaking of a remnant of people in Israel saved by God, Paul describes them being chosen by God, not by what they did, but according to the grace of God alone. Quote, in the same way, then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Close quote. That's Romans chapter 11, verses 5 and 6. Michael, did you have any questions for Matthew based on that section? Um, I don't I don't know about questions. I thought it was really well written, though. I thought all those points were extremely solid. Um, I guess the what kind of came to my mind was uh, President Nelson saying, you know, just do the best that you can. And you know, I liked how Matthew said, you know, perfection is perfection. And even the Book of Mormon completely seems to go against that when it says God cannot look upon sin with the least degree of allowance. So, you know, if, if you go to Judgment Day and you show God your report card and it's an A-, minus, according to the Book of Mormon, it's not going to be, oh, well, you did your best. There's, it seems like there's no allowance. Wouldn't you say, Matthew? Yeah. Isn't it uh, 2 Nephi 25, 23, the one that's quoted a lot, you know, by grace you're saved? Uh, after uh, all we can do. After so, all we can do, right. Yeah. Um, so they might point to that and say, well, see, this is just showing us that we just need to do our best and then God will make up the rest. I don't know about you guys, but I heard that all the time as a Latter-day Saint. Do our best, God makes up the rest. But, I mean, if you really want to, like you said, if you really want to examine perfection, you can't make any mistake past, present, future. You know, if we imagine, you know, Latter-day Saints and Christians both agree that Christ was absolutely perfect. He never sinned. But what if we were to say, oh, okay, well, when Jesus was a child, he sinned. It was just a minor sin, though. But he repented of it. So it's okay. That sin was forgiven. So he was perfect. When we're talking about keeping the law or being saved by the law, there's no there's no mercy, really. There's no repentance. There's no, okay, well, you know, you just made that one mistake, so we'll just wash that away. And, you know, it'll be okay. Your record is now ex- cleaned. You know, all of your demerits are expunged. When you're trying to be saved by law, there's no mercy. Justice requires absolute perfection. Um, that's why justice and mercy are kind of seen as two sides of a coin. You can't, you can't expect absolute justice, but then at the same time expect mercy. They're just kind of dichotomous views or understandings. Yeah, I, I agree. So one of the things that I see Latter-day Saints pull out a lot, especially with uh, Matthew, was it 548, is they'll say, well, perfection doesn't mean you know perfect obedience. It means being a resurrected being and being you know, perfect in that manner. Is that something that you hear a lot? <laughs> yeah. Uh, is this question four? Cause I think that's what, what the question is about, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, Michael's right on point. They, they point to third uh, Nephi 1248, which is the, uh, the point in the book of Mormon where uh, according to the narrative, the resurrected Christ has appeared to the Nephites at the temple in, in bountiful. And he's giving to them, uh, basically the Sermon on the Mount, right? And in, in Latter-day Saint parlance, they call that the Sermon at the Temple. Um, and he says uh, in Third Nephi 12, 48, therefore I would that you should be perfect, even as I or your Father who is in heaven is perfect. So that addition of even as I is where they point to, to say, yeah, that this, this shows us that perfection isn't moral perfection per se, uh, but is rather the perfection of of a resurrected, glorified body, and and becoming complete in that sense. 
What do you think about that? Do you encounter that argument from Latter-day Saints, Matthew? Oh, yeah. I hear that all the time. Um, our mutual friend, which I will leave nameless, uh, in one of his many scriptures that he threw at me to try to uh, get me to answer it. Yeah, I, I try to explain this. This connection only works because the connection is required. It's it's forced. So if you accept the Book of Mormon as authoritative, then, okay, yeah, I can see that connection, but I don't consider it authoritative. And so that's so when you're interpreting the Bible, a lot of times you'll have a passage where you can interpret it one of multiple potential ways where there are multiple possible valid interpretations just based on the immediate context. So then that takes a lot of work in saying, okay, well, if there's multiple interpretations of this particular passage, now we have to look at uh, like the scope of scripture and say, okay, what is the point or what is the purpose of scripture? It's to point to Christ. And we also have to use, and I forget if it's the analogy of faith or the analogy of scripture, their hermeneutical techniques, I forget which one it is, but it's the idea that, um, well, it's also just tota scriptura, where you're just trying to make all scripture, you're not trying to force scripture to contradict itself. If there are valid interpretations of scripture to where they, it doesn't force the Bible to contradict itself, you should choose the, the interpretation that makes the most sense, that, that doesn't force a contradiction. So I could see someone, if they were just reading Matthew 548 on itself, saying, okay, um, I think the Greek word can mean complete. So you could understand that to mean, okay, maybe he's not talking about sinless perfection here. Uh, maybe he's talking about some other quality of God where you could say that he is quote unquote complete. But I don't see from the Bible how you could get this idea that God the Father has a human body, a human nature, or that he was somehow a man that progressed to Godhood. So the only way that this works is within the framework of LDS theology. So you have to reinterpret this Bible passage in the context of their theology to, to make this connection work. But I don't think that you can recontextualize the text based on the Bible alone and come to that same conclusion. So it really, it, it's, it's kind of like a, it's kind of like an all or nothing thing where it's like, well, yeah, okay. If, if I were to presuppose that your doctrine is true, I could see that connection being valid. But since I reject the framework that your church teaches or you know, your theology teaches based on the fact that it teaches many extra biblical concepts, um, I don't accept that connection is valid. So, uh, oh my gosh, I got like a ton of things just going through my head right now too. But one thing is, uh, you know, in the Book of Mormon, even when Jesus says, be perfect, even as I, we don't have like, you know, the Greek or the Reformed Egyptian for the Book of Mormon. He could be saying, you know, assuming that, that the Book of Mormon is scripture, I mean, he could be saying that he could be using perfect in a completely different context than what is being said in uh, in Matthew. But I think it's extremely troubling to consider that a finite God who wasn't perfect was supposedly able to do a, an infinite atonement. I don't think that that is possible. I think that Jesus would have had to have been complete and and perfect in order to to do that. Yeah, that's the that's the challenge I would I would bring as well, um, because if you ask a Latter-day Saint, uh, because their theology uh, is that humans and gods are the same species, right? Just at different levels of progression. Um, if you ask a Latter-day Saint, what then qualifies Jesus or Jehovah on, on Latter-day Saint teachings to serve as the Messiah in that role? Um, because as, Ma as Michael just pointed out, the Book of Mormon teaches that uh, it, it must have been an infinite atonement and only an infinite God could carry out 
an infinite atonement. And so if you ask a Latter-day Saint, okay, if Jesus, if Jehovah, pre-mortal Jehovah is the same species as us and the same type of being as, as humans are, um, at that point, a spirit being, a spirit child of, of Heavenly Father, then there seems to be no real ontological difference between you and me and Michael and and Jehovah as conceived upon as conceived of in, in LDS thought. And so you have to ask the question, what qualifies Jehovah then to serve in the role of Messiah to carry out that infinite atonement? And and there they will say, well, it's it's his moral per- perfection. In the in the pre pre-mortal life, he was morally perfect and therefore he's able to carry out the atonement in a way that that we are not. And and some some won't even go there. Some will just say it's just because he was chosen. He was the chosen one by the Father. But it it runs up against those those rocks uh, that Michael pointed out that it has to be an infinite infinite atonement. And so if if complete in Matthew five forty eight and third Nephi twelve forty eight means uh, complete godhood, complete perfection in the sense of now he has progressed to to godhood uh, at the point of being resurrected and glorified, then then at the point of atonement, he was not. And that's problematic. Yeah, I think going back to my McConkie days, I'm pretty sure that McConkie said that Jesus qualified to be Messiah primarily because he was the literal firstborn son of God the Father in the spirit. And by virtue of his being the, the literal firstborn, the first created or firstborn, whatever you want to say it, spirit child, he had rights and privileges that we do not. So it's pretty much essentially the same thing as you said, Paul, where they said, where they would say, well, he was chosen. Sorry. Isn't that just Arianism repackaged? Um, I mean, pretty much. Yeah. But the thing is, that's different is Arius would say that there was a time when Jesus was not, or when the son was not. And Latter-day Saints will say, well, we believe the son has eternally existed. And they might, they might say, well, he existed as a spirit intelligence, you know, so they kind of get around that problem. Well, trying to have their cake and eat it too by saying he ex- eternally existed, but at the same time he was born. But but yeah, it is it is pretty similar to Arius in some ways to where he did not e- eternally exist as he was right before coming to Earth. So there was progression in the pre-mortal life to some extent. But yeah, I see what you're saying. You know, what's kind of interesting too, and I don't know if it's um, something that, that can be used at all, but there's instances in the Bible where somebody is called perfect or you know, Christ says, like, your faith has made you whole, which, you know, whole essentially means the same thing as complete. And even in the Book of Mormon, that happens with Enos, you know, God says, your your faith has made you whole. And they're mortal at the point when this happens. So it just seems like that kind of contradicts that whole, that whole idea that complete has to be something that happens after this life or perfect, I guess. Um, and, and then another thought that came to my mind, too, is, uh, Luke, you know, the the Sermon on the Mount in Luke talks differently. And if you look at the context, it, it makes sense there too. But Jesus says, uh, you know, you need to be kind to those who, who hate you. And then he says, be ye therefore, uh, I'm using King James because I'm still used to, uh, be ye therefore merciful, even as your father, which is in heaven, is merciful. And it fits the context really well. But I I never hear Latter-day Saints quote the uh, the Luke version. It's always the Matthew version that they want to talk about, which is kind of interesting. 
Yeah, that's a great point. And even even in the Matthew version, the context fits with the Lucan context as well. If you look at if you look back to the beginning of the pericope, you can see that the, what's being discussed there is is how you relate to your enemies, and then it gets to five forty eight, and so it 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 does appear from context in both the Math Mathian and the Lucan context that it's it's about love, right? Being perfect in your love for others. Yep. Absolutely. All right, Matthew, why don't you take us through the last section of part one of your article? Many times when showing a Latter-day Saint a quote from a president of their church, who they sustain as prophet, seer, and revelator, and speaks directly with God, with which they disagree, they often say that he was speaking as a man, he made a mistake, or employ some other explanation to avoid the fact that he disagrees with what they say or what they believe. But President Kimball quoted their own scriptures in the Doctrine and Covenants as justification for what he said. Is the Doctrine and Covenants wrong on this case also? Elsewhere in the Doctrine and Covenants, it teaches that every blessing it received is through obedience. Quote, there is a law irrevocably decreed in heaven for the foundation of this world upon which all blessings are predicated. And when we obtain any blessing from God, it is by obedience to that law upon which it is predicated. Close quote. That's Doctrine and Covenants chapter 130 verses 20 and 21. Here, we see that LDS scripture teaches that any blessing from heaven, which would certainly include the blessing of eternal life, is obtained by obedience by that law. This is a further reiterated in the LDS Gospel Topics Manual under the entry of eternal life, which can, be, which can be accessed at the LDS Church's website, where it says this, Eternal life is the phrase used in scripture to define the quality of life that our eternal Father lives. The Lord declared, this is my work and my glory to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man from Moses 139. Immortality is to live forever as a resurrected being. Through the atonement of Jesus Christ, everyone will receive this gift. Eternal life or exaltation is to live in God's presence and to continue as families. See Doctrine and Covenants 131 verses 1 through 4. Like immortality, the gift is made possible through the atonement of Jesus Christ. However, to inherit eternal life requires our obedience to the laws and ordinances of the gospel. When we are baptized and receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, we enter the path that leads to eternal life. After we are baptized and receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, much of our progress toward eternal life depends on our receiving other ordinances of salvation. For men, ordination to the Melchizedek priesthood. For men and women, the temple endowment and marriage sealing. When we receive these ordinances and keep the covenants that accompany them, we prepare ourselves to inherit eternal life. Close quote. What is clear here is that God's grace alone, through faith alone in Christ and his finished work on the cross alone, as taught and believed by Orthodox biblical Christianity, is insufficient to bring man to a right relationship with God. You must receive ordinances, keep the associated covenants by obedience, and keep other co commandments given by God through obedience to receive eternal life according to LDS doctrine. In the Book of Mormon, another book of scripture for the Latter-day Saints and the namesake of the common moniker Mormon, it reiterates that faith alone is insufficient to reach eternal life. It says, quote, The gate by which ye should enter is repentance and baptism by water, and then cometh a remission of your sins by fire and by the Holy Ghost. And then are ye in this straight and narrow path which leads to eternal life. Yea, ye have entered in by the gate. Ye have done according to the commandments of the Father and the Son. And ye have received the Holy Ghost, which witnesses of the Father and the Son, unto the fulfilling of the promise which he hath made, that if ye entered in by the way, ye should receive after you have gotten into this straight and narrow path, I would ask if all is done. Behold, I say unto you, Nay, for ye have not come thus far, save it were by the word of Christ, with unshaken faith in him, relying wholly upon the merits of him who is mighty to save. Wherefore, you must press forward with a steadfastness in Christ, 
having a perfect brightness of hope and a love of God and of all men. Wherefore, if you shall press forward, feasting upon the word of Christ and endure to the end, behold, thus saith the Father, you shall have eternal life. Close quote. That's a quotation from 2 Nephi 31 verses 17 through 20. The Book of Mormon reiterates that God's grace alone is insufficient. You need, at a minimum, faith, repentance, baptism by water, and the gift of the Holy Ghost to even enter the straight path to eternal life. But it doesn't end there either. You aren't saved yet, in the sense that biblical Christians understand the word saved, being sealed up to eternal life and having an assurance of salvation from sins, death, and hell by the blood of Jesus. If you also don't obey God and endure to the end, which includes receiving the ordinances of priesthood for men, temple endowment, and celestial marriage, temple sealing for husband and wife, you will not receive eternal life and exaltation with God, but you will receive a lesser glory. Thus, you must continue in faithfulness and add to your salvation by your own works. Even if God is helping you out, it still depends on you. Thus, you can't really ever have an assurance of salvation as a Latter-day Saint because it depends on you and your works. If a Latter-day Saint were to say they do have an absolute assurance of salvation, I would ask them, and if you commit a sin tomorrow and are excommunicated from the LDS church, did you lose your salvation or was your assurance of salvation unfounded to begin with? All right. Thanks, Matthew. Matthew, why do you think Latter-day Saints tend to shy away from what previous leaders have said about perfection? I think it's just because the stress is just too much. It's just too much of a burden. I think many people have been really been damaged by things such as Spencer W. Kimball's Miracle Forgiveness. I mean, there's not one person who I talk to who has said that book, even if they say they love that book, they'll, they'll say they love that book, but dot, dot, dot. So they'll, they'll probably say, well, it was too harsh or it was too hard to understand, or it was too hard to believe, or, you know, I just felt so terrible, or I felt like I was just sinning and I would never make it to exaltation. You know, they just feel completely unworthy or or incapable of achieving what he has called them to do. And I think in a sense, Christians, when we read the Bible, when we read the Old Testament, we see all these laws, especially the Levitical laws. And I think we have kind of a similar sentiment. We say, man, how did they keep all those laws? You know, like if you had a, I think one of the laws was like, if you had a mold in your house, you had to leave for seven days or something like that. And, 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 uh, you know, follow the ceremonial laws and, and you couldn't do this. If you infringed upon someone else's property, you had to pay them back. There were just so many laws they had to keep. And when Christians read that, we don't think, wow, you know, I really got to get to work. I got to keep all these laws, all these 613 commandments, you know, that's how I'm going to make it. We think, thank, thank and praise God that we have Christ and that it's not up to me and my obedience to be saved. But I think a lot of the Latter-day Saints would read the miracle forgiveness and say, okay, well, I got to get to work. You know, these are all the things I got to do. You know, I got to make this checklist. At least that's kind of how I did as a Latter-day Saint. So I I think, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Can I jump in with an anecdote there about that book? So I I was in my first area of my mission when I read that book. And so I was in Budapest and kind of just starting out as a, as a missionary. And I read the book and I remember getting to a particular section of it. One Wednesday evening, we were at the, at the branch house for uh, kind of mutual activities with the, the members there. And I was sitting off to the side reading and I got to this one section of the book and uh, it just, I was just overcome by guilt and frustration and a feeling of hopelessness because the book just took me to a place where it made me realize how far away from the the level of perfection that Spencer Kimball was saying is necessary for eternal life, how far away I was from that. And there was no 
hope given, like you were talking about, Matthew, of thank God for Jesus Christ and what he has done. It was just, no, this is what you must do. Right. And I, I left the branch house that, that night. Um, and we walked to the bus stop and took the bus back to our apartment. And it was, it was into the next weekend and week that I was still feeling completely hopeless. And it, it strikes me now that that was, that was a weird thing to happen to an LDS missionary, right? You're there supposedly preaching good news to people, supposedly preaching salvation and, and hope to people. And I was feeling completely hopeless to the, to the point where I had to, uh, that following Monday for P-Day, I had to call up the mission president and go have a discussion with him about it because I couldn't get out of that space, that headspace of just guilt and feeling utterly worthless. And I've heard that experience uh, and similar experiences shared by many Latter-day Saints who have read that book. And it's, it's unfortunate that that, that that book has that, that heavy focus on perfection and it doesn't give a message of, of hope, right? It's like the message it gives is, you know, you just, you just got to make sure you're repenting of everything that you're doing wrong constantly. Um, and eventually you'll get to that level of perfection, but it doesn't leave you with that. It doesn't leave you with any kind of feeling of, of hope. And that's unfortunate. I was going to jump into just, just briefly here, but uh, I've seen Latter-day Saints also, throw their previous leaders under the bus. And I think you kind of have to, not just because it's um, depressing and, and stressful and impossible to be perfect, but also because the modern leaders now are emphasizing grace a lot more. And so it ends up being a different gospel than what was taught before. And so you are forced to to fall in line. And I mean, it's interesting to think about, but I think the same thing would happen if the prophet came out today and said, you know, started teaching the five solas, Latter-day Saints would have to throw out all their previous prophets and go with whatever he said. So yeah, that's kind of a dilemma when you've got leaders that you say are a mouthpiece for God is whatever they say, even if it contradicts an old leader, it's what you have to fall in line with. Even just the teaching of grace has changed so much over the years because I kind of remember it when I was a kid being taught that grace, it wasn't talked about a lot, but when it was, it was God is helping you to do what you're supposed to do. It's, it's, it enables you to accomplish what you're supposed to accomplish. And they would quote first Nephi three, seven, where it says like, God will, uh, man, I should know this is your mastery, but, uh, you know, God does not give us commandments that we can't keep essentially. And so then grace will say, well, see, grace is why we can keep all the commandments because God makes it possible. Grace is not a gift. It's like kind of like a little push on the back. It's like a little, you know, it's a little cheerleading. I don't, I don't know, whatever you want to call it, you know, like a little encouragement to say you can do it, you know, uh, but eventually you still have to do it. And, and it's not to say that I want to say too, that it's not to say that Christians don't believe in repentance. It's not that we don't believe in faith or striving to keep God's commandments, but we do it with the knowledge that we're already in Christ. We're already redeemed believers. We're already justified, declared righteous, and we're adopted children. And so sanctification is the process where, whereby we, are conformed to the image of Christ through the work of the spirit. And so keeping the commandments is not a bad thing, but we don't use that as our standard of whether we get into heaven or not. It's not our, it's not our obedience and our own personal righteousness. That's determining whether we get to heaven or not. Um, I mean, scripture even talks about, you know, when somebody does something, they'll say, so-and-so is righteous. Abraham was a righteous man. 
And I think you can even take that in both ways because we believe in imputed righteousness whereby the perfect righteousness of Christ is credited to our account through faith. There's that form of perfect righteousness that we must have in order to reach heaven. And there is some level of personal righteousness that we must achieve, I would say, in the sense that we must demonstrate through our works to men that we are believers. You know, if we have no desire to follow God, we have no desire to do what's right, then it shows our hearts. It shows that our hearts haven't changed. And you can you can call that kind of personal righteousness, but that is not a perfect righteousness. That's a that's an outflowing of God's changing us and giving us new hearts and regeneration. So by by either standard, um, I mean the, the LDS standard is kind of different. It's kind of like a different. It's like a third option where it's like you have to eventually receive absolute perfect righteousness by your continued obedience and repentance. Do you know what I mean? It's not like we're credited with perfect repent perfect righteousness now and imputed righteousness and then that that is demonstrated in our life and in our abilities our works it's more like you have to eventually crawl up the ladder and get to this point where you and yourself are perfect and i don't think i don't think that's what the gospel is no and 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 definitely not and that's you know i talked about that experience on my mission reading miracle of forgiveness and and when i did go and, and speak with my mission president the message even then was not hey you you're you're saved because of what Jesus Christ did. The message was you're doing okay, Elder Nuremberg, as long as you keep on this path and just keep doing the right things and just keep trying, you're going to be okay in the end kind of message. And I, you know, I compare that to like John, first John five thirteen, right? Where, where John is kind of summing up why he's written his epistle. And he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God that you may know that you have eternal life, right? He's telling them, he's giving them a message that is hopeful, right? I'm writing these things so you know you believe in the Son of God and therefore you have eternal life. It's not something you're working to achieve later on. It's not something that's going to come after you achieve perfection. You have it now. And, you know, I thought it was interesting when we talked to Paul Cardall and he talked about how understanding that difference uh, is what enables him to, go after sanctification, right? Because he's not, he doesn't feel hopeless. He knows I've got eternal life. Christ has paid my price and therefore I want to live for him. And I thought that was a beautiful message that he shared there. And uh, I guess if I could just give a sort of an, an analogy too, because, you know, last night we we had dinner, we had some hamburgers and then my kid went, uh, well, we ended up running to the store and my kid hadn't cleaned his up and the cats got it made a mess with it. I'm just like, great, you know, but it's like, you know, in, in a relationship like that, you know, it's like, yeah, he, he did something wrong. He, I may want him to change his habits or, or apologize to me, but nothing that he did, you know, affected that relationship. It's not like he has to change before he can be my son again or come back and live in the house. Like it's secure completely regardless of what, he does. And that's, that's how it is with God too. We're in a secure relationship with him and that relationship doesn't get damaged by, by our sin. You know, it's still there holding fast all the time. And that is, um, that is definitely a relief <laughs> as a Christian to, to be able to know that. So Matthew, how would you answer a Latter-day Saint who responded to your final question in this section by answering that if they were excommunicated from the LDS church because of sin, that they had lost their salvation. That's one thing I've been thinking about because um, not all Christians will agree on whether 
your salvation is eternally secured. Uh, I think all of us agree that when you're justified, it's a once for all declaration that it's not something you lose. There are many Christians though that do believe that you lose salvation uh, based on certain interpretations of passages like Hebrews. Um, so, but I think that that the whole biblical witness is clear that when you are in God's hand, when you're in the Father's hand and in Christ's hand, that nothing can take you out of his hand, that there's nothing that can take you out of salvation. Now, some might counter and say, well, that mean it doesn't say anything about you not jumping out of God's hand. It just says anything else doesn't keep you from leaving God's hand. So that's kind of a side topic. But I, I really think that the, the witness of Scripture is that eternal life is something that's given and it's not taken away, as Paul um, beautifully described um, with uh, John's epistle, talking about how believers can know based on, you know, do they love God? Do they love men, et cetera? Are they, do they continue to repent? Um, these are signs that they are true believers. So if a Latter-day Saint were to come to me and say that they had lost their salvation because they're, they were excommunicated, I would ask them why they believe that their salvation is tied directly to the church. Many of them will say today, they'll say, well, we, you know, we believe in Jesus. Jesus is the one who saves. But when you really think about it, Jesus, apart from their organization, cannot save. They have to be saved within within the the setting within the covenants, everything that is done in the LDS church and their ordinances performed by their authority. So I would ask them, why, why can't Jesus save you apart from your church? And, you know, I thinking about it now, it doesn't make sense to me, you know, just because we believe that we're justified personally, you know, through faith in Christ. And then we join ourselves to a church of fellow believers. It's not the church that gives us salvation. But as a Latter-day Saint, it just made totally sense to me. You know, I, I thought, well, this is the way God planned it. He said, you have to make these covenants with me. The covenants are only valid if you have done it by priesthood authority. And that's just the way it is. You know, it's it's not that Christ isn't accessible to everyone. It's just that that's the plan he made for us. But when you really think about it, where in the Bible does it say, you know, join the church and then you can come unto me? He never says that, you know. He says, come unto me, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He's always inviting them to come to him. Um, the Philippian jailer, he asks, what must I do to be saved? And I always forget, is it Peter or Paul? I think it's Peter that responds to him, right? The Philippian jailer. He says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. He doesn't say, okay, come join our church, you know, uh, go through all the ordinances, go through the quote unquote, the covenant path. And then if you're faithful at the end, you will know Jesus. He just says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's as simple as that. So I would invite them. I would invite them to re-examine the Bible and I would invite them to say, to, to really examine themselves and, and understand the reality that they didn't lose their salvation. They, they never had to begin with what they thought that they had and that they really need to just trust in Christ. And that's how they'll be saved. Yeah. And that's a beautiful place to wrap up our discussion of part one of your article. We thank you for tuning into this episode of the Outer Brightness podcast. We'd love to hear from you please visit the Outer Brightness podcast page on Facebook. Feel free to send us a message there with comments or questions by clicking send a message at the top of the page, and we would appreciate it if you give the page a like. We also have an Outer Brightness group on Facebook where you can join and interact with us and others as we discuss the podcast, past episodes, and suggestions for future episodes, etc. You can also send us an email at outerbrightness at gmail.com. We hope to hear from you soon. You can subscribe to the Outer Brightness Podcast on Apple Podcasts, CastBox, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Podbean, Spotify, and Stitcher. 
Also, you can check out our new YouTube channel, and if you like it, be sure to lay hands on that subscribe button and confirm it. If you like what you hear, please give us a rating and review wherever you listen and help spread the word. You can also connect with Michael the Ex-Mormon Apologist at FromWaterToWine.org, where he blogs, and sometimes Paul and Matthew do as well. Music for the Outer Brightness podcast is graciously provided by the talented Brianna Flournoy and by Adams Road. Learn more about Adams Road by visiting their ministry page at adamsroadministry.com. Stay bright, fireflies. Light. I am the way and the truth.